Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Teach Me How to History. My name is Jasmine. And my name is Laura. And today we will be covering the history of pandemics. Mm-hmm. It's very fitting since we are currently living in a pandemic. And you guys voted and we listened, so here you go. So just to give a little breakdown of today's episode before diving into it we will be covering the most impactful pandemics throughout history and epidemics so not all of these um these uh, pandemics or these viruses that we we will be talking about they're not all pandemics Mm -hmm. but we just want to give a run through of the most popular ones yeah the most impactful in human history and how they've affected the world around us and we will end by giving some insight um on like the, the medical field and people who just been living, uh, working in hospitals or just been living uh, this pandemic first firsthand. Mm-hmm. And we will also give our opinions and experiences since we have been essential workers since the beginning. Yeah, exactly. So just before beginning, we would like to make the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. So an epidemic is a disease that affects a large amount of of people within a certain community yeah. or population. However, a pandemic is an epidemic that spreads over multiple countries or continents. So it's yeah, spread, it, it goes, it becomes reach, worldwide. Yeah, it becomes a global epidemic. It, yeah, it becomes a global like problem. Yeah, exactly. Like a global epidemic is a pandemic. Exactly. To make it like in a shorter sense. So yeah, so we could obviously, we can't deny that COVID is a obviously pandemic. a pandemic but as we go on through the timeline of other um, diseases that have traveled and that have affected our history uh, some are considered pandemics and some are considered epidemics so we're going to specify them as we discuss the first pandemic we're going to discuss today is actually the plague of justinian uh, the plague of Justinian actually originated in Egypt and was spread to Constantinople during the Byzantine Empire, which was in the year 541. Um, this plague was actually caused by fleas that were on rats, and then the rats actually ended up eating all of the grain, which at the time, grain was the main source of people's diets and nutrition. And I'm just going to give a bit of explanation behind that because I know it's like a chain reaction of everything. So at this time, uh, especially in Europe, there was uh, a change in climate. So there was, it was colder weather, it was more rain and winds, which affected the harvest. And the only produce that survived this drastic change in weather was grain. So that's why it was such a popular ingredient in most people's diets at the time. And that's why it affected such a large group because it was contaminated by these diseased rats. Long story short. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So although the rats, like in general, if we want to like look at the specifics, rats don't really travel in great distances they they remain pretty locally but it's because there was a lot of transportation within the empire and a lot of boats that traveled from the byzantine empire to europe to asia and to north africa as well um it was all of these grains that were transported in crates that basically traveled to these other regions in the world and spread this disease 
The Plague of Justinian is actually named after the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, which is Emperor Justinian. And it is expected to have killed between 30 and 50 million people. And at the time, this was actually half of the world's population. Can you just imagine today if that were the case, that were almost 8 billion people today and 4 billion people died because of a plague? Like imagine those were the numbers of COVID. Like how crazy is that? Regarding the treatment, nothing was available at the time. Uh, the only remedy or treatment, I guess, that was recommended for people was avoiding it was avoidance, I guess. It was avoidance at all costs. It was, you know that someone's sick, you avoid the person. Right. You, know, you can't really do more than that. There were no treatments. There weren't anything available. And uh, the end of this plague basically fizzled out because throughout time, people developed an immunity to this. And then it didn't become as deadly and effective as it was at the time. The next pandemic after that was the Black was the Black Death, or also known as the bubonic plague. Um, fun fact about this uh, about this plague: it was actually the invention of quarantine, the famous word that we hear so often today. <laughs> um, also, um, alongside of that, uh, the bubonic plague was actually a continuation of the Justinian plague. So the first play that I mentioned never actually ended because there was obviously no cure for it. There was no medication. It sizzled down. But then a couple of hundred years later, it basically resurfaced and wow. became a lot more deadly and effective so so it mutated yeah exactly so it was a plague that was never properly treated and 800 years later turned into the bubonic plague that i'm sure a lot of people have heard about right like it's the very medieval yeah plague. But it's it's what's in everybody's history books mm -hmm. we all learned it at some point you know what right I mean? but we're gonna we're gonna dive into a couple of details just to show the extent of it um, so the bubonic plague hit Europe in 1347, um, very similar to the Justinian plague. It was through trading ships. Um, the first case that actually hit Europe uh, was in Messina, Sicily. Shout out to all the Sicilians out there. Um, it was discovered at the port because it's a large port city. And basically, um, those at the port discovered that all the ships were filled with dead bodies. And they quickly got rid of these ships, but it was too late because the plague had already reached the city. And it spread like wildfire. The number of deaths that the bubonic plague caused uh, were approximately 25 million within just the first four years. And there are some statistics that even say that in total, the entire bubonic plague caused over 200 million deaths, which is a crazy number. Wow, we were freaking out about 30 to 50 million in the last plague. Yeah. But this one is... 200 million mm -hmm. it affected 200 million people yeah how crazy that wow like i previously said the bubonic plague um actually um created this whole idea of quarantine that we're using today obviously uh so i'm just gonna give a little background to this and how it came about so uh the first application of quarantine was actually 
um, a law applied by the Vatican um, in the city of Ragusa in Sicily as well. Once again, represent. So this, once again, is a port city. And it became an isolated city where all of the sailors and people that transported things in boats would have to isolate for 30 days until they can prove that they don't have any symptoms and that they aren't sick. So the word, the law that was created by the Vatican was called Trentino. So because it was 30 days, that was the first law. Then once they saw that there were still raising in, in numbers and of these cases of the bubonic plague, they raised the isolation days to 40 days, which changed the name to Quarantino. Hence, quarantine. Yeah, so I found that really cool and interesting. That was a fun fact. Yeah. Um, so uh, the bubonic plague, some of the symptoms that were uh, present. shown yeah, and present at the time for the victims were um, basically uh, not really appetizing, but <laughs> they were black boils that, um, that formed on the skin that uh, oozed blood and uh, basically like black pus and that's why they called it the black the black death um the symptoms attack the lymph uh, the lymphatic system which caused swelling in the lymph nodes and uh later affected your blood and lungs and once you were attacked with this plague with this bubonic plague um it was a very short death like the the but survival tiny... rate was very, very, very low. Mm-hmm. So a final fun fact about the bubonic plague is uh, the very popular nursery song, Ring Around the Rosie, was actually written about the symptoms of the bubonic plague. So let's just dive into the lyrics and what they represent. So, Ring Around the Rosie talks about the red rashes that were caused of the bubonic plague then we have the pocket full of posies that basically indicates uh, flowers and herbs that people used to use to try and ward off this disease and then ashes ashes we all fall down talks about the eventual death the eventual death that caught that basically was caused by this plague so a little morbid, but fun fact. <laughs> the next plague that I wanted to talk about, this is actually an epidemic, not a pandemic, um, is the Great Plague of London. So this is a continuation of the Black Death because once again at this time, there was no treatment available. It was really the introduction of quarantine, which is a more elevated and structured version of avoidance, which was in the initial... Um, plague of Justinian so um, once again continued on to another era Um, this plague resurfaced in London every 10 years from the years 1348 to the year 1665 throughout this time there were about 40 outbreaks in these 300 years and each outbreak killed approximately 20% of the population which is crazy Mm -hmm. Um, So in the 1500s, there was actually the first law applied in London to isolate the sick from the rest of the population. So once again, another version of quarantine that was originally created in uh, Italy. Um, The worst plague, uh, like the worst 
outbreak of this plague was actually the last one, uh, which is also known as the Great Plague in 1665. Uh, this killed over 100,000 Londoners in only seven months. Um, and at this time, people were once again forcibly locked into their homes. Um, before they were basically, it wasn't a suggestion, it was obviously like very much recommended, but here, though, like everyone was really very much forced to stay in their homes, they were not allowed to leave. Um, also, there, in order to indicate families that were affected by this plague, they uh, painted red crosses on their doors of the diseased houses, and the saying, uh, Lord have mercy upon us that is very popular to this day, actually comes from the saying that those that painted those red doors with the red crosses, it was like a prayer that they said to the families of the disease that were locked in the house with them. Um, so the ending of this great plague in London actually ended because of the mass graves that they that they had to do in order to bury the bodies and isolate them from the rest of the population. And these enforcements of locking people in their homes. It was obviously terrible conditions at the time and unheard of today in, mm-hmm. uh, in our society. If, any, if anything like that were to happen, we'd freak out. We had to, it was suggested to stay in our homes and, and all, all of Montreal... <laughs> panicked went into shutdown uh-huh. and freaked out can Panic you just mode. imagine if we were forced to not even leave our houses right like not not even for essential yeah like for absolutely nothing it was basically like everybody staying to their house until we actually absolutely kill this off and that's, that's it. it another way to indicate um this was actually before the actual great plague in 1665 uh families who were allowed to actually leave their houses but were in contact or had a family member that was affected by the plague had to walk around with white poles in society so others can basically avoid them if i guess they wanted to and um another thing other than the red crosses that they painted on their houses they needed to place a um a a pail of hay that was attached to their poles outside of their houses in order to indicate to other people i guess walking by or even just attempting to go to their houses like that they can't go because they're affected by the disease uh the next pandemic that i will be discussing is smallpox uh smallpox affected the regions of europe asia and arabia and killed three in ten people so very deadly as well obviously not as deadly as the bubonic plague but still very very high numbers um for those who actually survived it uh many actually were left with uh damaging scars on their faces and their bodies that basically basically never really went away um the biggest issue with this play uh with this pandemic was not how it affected the europeans initially yes it was deadly like i said it was three and ten but throughout time um those who were affected by it developed an immunity to it it was only it only became a really really big issue when uh the period of colonization began and europeans started exploring the new world which was america and um 
the Europeans were obviously exposed to a whole new world, a whole new type of people that they've never experienced before, they've never come in contact with, and vice versa with the indigenous in America. They've never been in contact with the Europeans mm-hmm. and all the diseases that they carry that they were immune to. So once the Europeans went to America to start colonizing, they killed off enormous amounts of indigenous people because they didn't have this immunity because they were never exposed to smallpox. So the numbers are actually crazy. Um, Over 90 to 95 indigenous people died of smallpox. Wow. So in Mexico, the indigenous people Mm -hmm. in Mexico, within the first century of European colonization, the population went from 11 million indigenous people to just 1 million in a century. That's crazy. Yeah. So it that's killed 10 million everybody deaths almost. In years. Wow. Yeah. So it was a it was crazy numbers and the thing what I find most worst about this is that Europeans caught on to this and actually used it as a weapon. They used it to their advantage. Yeah. So what a lot of people don't understand is that Europeans were very much aware Maybe at the beginning they weren't. It was an honest mistake. But then they caught on to how they were affecting these indigenous people. And they used it to their advantage to take over their lands. That's right. And so in a lot of these trades and deals that they did with indigenous people and gave these peace offerings, a lot of the times they would give objects knowing that they were contaminated with this particular disease that Europeans were immune to Mm -hmm. and would kill all of these people. Um, it was actually, um, it was officially documented as the first biological weapon in human history. So this was the first documented case ever of biological warfare, which we will be discussing later on what biological warfare is and how it could affect even our future today. Today, right. So I just find that crazy to me how europeans use something that once affected them and killed so much of their Their own own population they used it to kill off other people exactly and it was only in 1980 that the world health organization announced uh smallpox to be completely eradicated so the next disease we will be discussing is cholera this disease surfaced in the early to mid 19th century and i will be speaking specifically about um, its outbreak in England. However, there were cholera outbreaks in other parts of the world, such as South America and Yemen, which are the two other most popular um, cholera outbreaks. However, the one in England, um, especially in 1853, killed tens of thousands of people. And, And why it's so important and relevant still today is because it launched the modern epidemiology which is the control of diseases and other factors relating to health. So at first, they thought that cholera was spread through foul, uh, foul air, uh, basically unpleasant or unhealthy smell or, or vapor in the air. However, British doctor John Snow was convinced that this disease lurked in London's drinking water. So he created a geographic chart of cholera deaths over a 10-day period and found a cluster of 500 fatal 
infection surrounding the Broad Street Pump, which was a popular city well for drinking water in London. So what he did was he he basically traced these deaths down to one specific spot, which is... Like that specific well. Exactly. And so he convinced local officials to remove the pump handle on on the Broad Street drinking well. So nobody could have used it. Yeah. And... And just like that, the infection began to to dry up. It began began like to die disappear, down, yeah. die down. So obviously, cholera didn't go away overnight. Yeah. But it eventually led to a global effort to improve urban sanitation and to protect drinking water from contamination because this was the main issue. People, this cholera outbreak was caused due to um, contaminate water contamination. Well, it's even interesting that like scientists were actually getting involved. Right. You know what I mean? And it actually obviously made a difference. Exactly. And so cholera was largely eliminated in developed countries such as mm-hmm. such England. as England. However, it was still a persistent killer in third world countries. And this is why we see it coming back in South South America or in Yemen at later dates because these are countries I guess that are lacking adequate sewage treatment and access and they don't really sources exactly and so this is what makes it so so relevant and so important so next uh, we will be speaking about the Spanish flu and this is the deadliest pandemic in history so it all began because um, it started in 1918 and during this time there was World War One, so how it was the end of World War One, but yeah. it, it was still yeah, still, happening. still happening. So a lot, it was really uh, prevalent in a lot of army camps because men were coming and going to the front, and so men. Uh, it usually started. Men started. Um, symptoms started to appear, and it usually started to be. They thought it would be an or, an ordinary cold or an ordinary influenza that already existed but when they were brought to hospital or to care they were very rapidly developed like a pneumonia and then they would just they would die Mm. so this this was really caused it was a quick death and this was caused for for much like panic and yeah well because a world war war like the like it's a world war war the entire world is involved you know what i mean exactly so i'm guessing this is the first one that reached a global scale you know what i mean mm-hmm. That's and why it affected so many people and also the pandemic was known as the spanish flu however it did not start in spain mm. it was just okay but jazz i have a question um is it actually why is it called the spanish flu though did it originate in spain was it because it had the highest numbers well from what i understand is that uh, spain was one of the very few European countries to remain neutral during World War One. Okay. So, so it's broadcast. They weren't as biased as I guess other places. And it was in Madrid that this this flu first made headlines. Okay. However, it didn't really. It did not originate in in Spain. Okay, so it was the first to basically broadcast it. It wasn't because it originated there. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. It was actually in March 1918 that outbreak of flu-like illness uh, are first detected in the United States. More than 100 soldiers at Camp uh, Funston in Fort Riley, Kansas, became ill with flu. Within a week, the number of flu cases quintupled. Wow. So, 
so that that's a lot and then it became very sporadic so there was flu activity in the united states europe and asia and this is also due to the war because yeah. all these Everything men were at the were. front nurses were being sent to the front and a lot of traveling a lot a lot of traveling was happening however panic obviously came came into play here and actually people didn't even want to let soldiers return home after the war because because they they were obviously they were obviously afraid right and and there was a lot of like inconsistent thoughts during this time and beliefs and attitudes and um and so this has a lot to play with the flu but also just the time that these people people were living in and by may there were still hundreds of thousands of soldiers traveling across the atlantic each month as they were being deployed for world war one and so this obviously increased um, the spread of this flu. So this was this was the first wave. Okay. Because the this actually I should have mentioned this earlier, but this flu has three waves. Okay. So this this was wave one, and the second wave comes in September 1918, mm-hmm. and um, basically the second wave emerged at a camp uh, Camp Devins in uh, in the United States. It was actually a facility in Boston. And the second wave was the most fatal. Mm. So it was responsible for the most deaths. And um, New York City Board of Health adds flu to the list of reportable diseases and requires all flu cases to be isolated at home or in a city hospital. Mm. And by the end of September, more than 14,000 flu cases are reported at Camp Devins just alone, equaling about one quarter of total camp, resulting in 757 deaths. And in October of 1918, this virus killed an estimated 195,000 Americans only in October alone. Wow. So, so that's, that's really crazy. This just shows how, how deadly this second wave really was. And a... A factor contributing to that, I I think, anyways, is in um, fall of 1918, the United States experienced a severe shortage of professional nurses because of the deployment of the large number of them to military camps nearing the end of this of the war. So since a lot of them were sent to military camps, there weren't many left in these in these cities or in these regions where a lot of the population was affected. Um for example, Philadelphia was hit very hard with this pandemic uh, flu virus. More than 500 corpses awaited burial. Okay, this was uh, more than a week. There, there was just these bodies waiting to be buried, and cold storage plants were were used as a temporary morgues. So this is how many people were were dying quickly. Yes, exactly, and then. Um, Chicago, along with many other cities across the United States, closed their their theaters, movie houses, and and schools, and they prohibited public gatherings. And New York City reported a 40% decline in shipyard productivity due to this illness in the middle of World War One, which is really crazy. Yeah. So um, November 1918, the end of World War One, right? So. The war ends, and here comes the, I guess, third wave, because war ended, 
everybody is is celebrating on especially on armistice day and soldiers begin to demobilize mm. so now they're going from the front where they all had where they were all together fighting yeah. and they're going back to their respective regions yeah so they're bringing exactly society back into right and homes. exactly and so they're bringing this illness with them mm-hmm. so uh this third wave occurs in the late fall winter and it goes all the way into january 1919 where um where the wave where the third wave actually subsides only in the summer so a little fun fact i guess is that more people died during the 1918 pandemic than the total number of military and civilian deaths that resulted from world war 1 crazy they were happening almost like world war 1 began way earlier the this illness only came at the end of world war 1 so that's just to say to put things into perspective yeah. the it, four years of war all of the deaths of a world war war mm-hmm. were not even equivalent were less than what happened at that final year with this pandemic exactly and so just to sum up this this uh, flu an estimated one third of the world's population was infected with the 1918 flu virus wow. resulting in at least 50 million deaths worldwide hmm. that's so crazy. so that's really crazy yeah so the next flu we will be talking about is the swine flu or also known as h1n1 mm-hmm. and this was not a pandemic it was an epidemic yeah. um it originated in mexico in 2009 However, the uh, first detected case was in the United States and then it just spread very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um so it was unique because it was a combination of influenza genes that were not were, which were never previously identified in any animal or or human beings before. And the Center for Disease Control and Prevention also known as the CDC estimated that 151,700 to 575,400 people worldwide died from this H1N1 virus during the first year that it that it circulated. Oh wow, I didn't know it was that many. Right, so globally 80% of of uh, H1N1 deaths were estimated to have occurred in people younger than 65 years of age. And now this is really important because this differs greatly from the typical seasonal influenza epidemics during which about 70% to 90% of deaths are estimated to occur in people 65 years and older. Wow, that's actually crazy. Right, and this is what makes um this this flu um well, this influenza very yeah. unique is the fact that it really um affected the younger population as opposed to the older population which is what we are used to seeing in these in these epidemics. Yeah. And last but not least, the main event of tonight, the one you've all been waiting for and the <laughs> pandemic we are currently all living, living with is COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And as a lot of you obviously may know, um the outbreak began in China in December of 2019. The total coronavirus cases to this day um is 29,411,042 cases. 
the deaths are 931,861 deaths and the number of people recovered are 21,253,831 people. And most importantly, the current active coronavirus cases um, is 7,225,350 cases. And it was on January 30th of 2020 that the Director General of the World Health Organization declared that the coronavirus outbreak was a public health emergency. So this is the highest level of alarm and... Exactly, it was declared a pandemic. Yeah. And since we are obviously still living through this pandemic right now, mm-hmm. there's not much else we can say. We can't really predict the future, but we are living through an historical moment yeah. right now, which is super, super uh, interesting. Interesting. No matter how devastating it actually right. is. Right. And we can look back at all these other pandemics or epidemics, and, you know, we can just see where the future will, will take us. Yeah. So, like, we're living through history right now, so the future is yet to be determined. Right. Um, but what actually uh, is a potential threat that the COVID actually has um, presented to us is uh, the possibility of a virus or a disease being used as biological warfare. Right. So, this is a potential threat to our future that hopefully knock on wood does not happen actually become a thing but the potential has made it more evident now than ever of Mm -hmm. how effective biological warfare can be in the future Mm -hmm. and so basically um if it has proved anything is that it has the potential to be a really grave threat not only politically, but economically and socially as well, because we're living through these effects, even though we're not saying COVID was an example of biological warfare. That's not what we're indicating at all in this statement. We're just saying because we see the effects of what COVID is uh, is doing to our society and the entire planet, everyone's involved. Right. It just gives us something to think about it at yeah. the end. Well, it, it gives us something to be made aware of and hopefully future the future will not involve mm-hmm. more of these incidents hopefully and hopefully yeah. it won't be used as biological warfare but, but what we're just it definitely trying is a potential threat because right i'm sure terrorist organizations are seeing this and saying wow the entire world shut down because of this like right. why would i bomb a building when i can man make a virus that's that's what we're trying to infer like was it yeah was it a product of nature or was it a product of man well, COVID, I think we can determine. Mind you, we don't know. Like we said, we're living through it. We're not going to insinuate anything here. But from what we know, it has. it's not man-made. Mm-hmm. Even though there's some people that believe otherwise. And there's some people that believe, no, that's absolutely impossible. We don't know yet. This is yet to be determined. But like we said, it's not that we're saying COVID is an example of biological warfare. It just has the potential to be used as it like not exactly COVID itself but, viruses. but just viruses in general in the future exactly something to think about yeah so now that we've completed the timeline we would like i guess to just give some insight especially in the medical field or from people who are in this health science field so we did the history part and now we just want to give a little bit of input 
um, of personal experiences dealing with COVID. Right, from from health health professionals. So yeah. a colleague of mine who is a pharmacist gave their um, their experience or mm-hmm. just their experience opinion on this whole COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. And basically, what what this pharmacist said was that the daily routine of basically working in a pharmacy was upheaved in the course of one month. Typically, security and crowd control, you know, is non-existent in retail pharmacies as visitors are traditionally healthy enough to be out on their own. However, within a few weeks, there was suddenly a large amount of sanitization and public health responsibility placed on the the shoulders of pharmacists. And, you know, they had no lag phase phase in which to adapt to this new reality. So it's like they were just thrown out there you know with the sharks thrown into yeah and they still needed to stay open and continue serving their patients yeah. so a day would consist of working you know their usual hours followed by planning and um and implementing new methods to keep both the staff but the public safe as well mm-hmm. and all while simultaneously conforming to the ever-changing public health regulations because you know in the beginning it was changing it was every day changing. yeah every well, day even to this day people are still listening to the news but that's it at the beginning it was more intense literally every single day at one o'clock mm-hmm. you open then up you the news and, and you watch mr lego yeah yeah and um what i think was most um valuable to take out of um this discussion i had with the pharmacist is that you know how they treated these covid patients because obviously there there were cases uh and they obviously didn't present themselves at the pharmacy but they still had clients who were infected with this covid 19 and had to be treated and so treatment was a matter of symptomatic it was treatment of covid was a matter of symptomatic treatment so it was basically helping the patient feel better at home so, example, yeah. alleviating the fever and cough, which are the most uh, prevalent yeah. uh, symptoms. Because we still don't have a cure, all you can do is treat the symptoms. Exactly. Symptoms, so right? they had to monitor the state of the patient to ensure their health yeah. improved. However, fortunately enough, there were safety nets put in place rapidly and patients generally had access to resources at the hospitals or over the phone when needed. You know, there was that oh, that, that hotline number yeah. that is was circulated and still is being circulated mm-hmm. all over the place. And um, when I asked the pharmacist, you know, what is the best thing to do from now? Yeah. And, you know, like what should we out, do yeah. from here on out? And it's basically to listen to public health officials. So even if your personal opinion on the situation may differ slightly in a crisis, remaining disciplined and united is what will make the difference in the long run. Yeah. So public health officials are generally speaking the most qualified people to implement strategies not only because of their scientific background, but because of their access to the whole wide range of statistical information on the population, in addition to their ability to coordinate with other branches of government. I find that really interesting, though, that, like, I never thought of it that way because there's some people, obviously, that they have different opinions, like people don't want to wear a mask, Mm -hmm. they don't believe that it's a thing. But it's like, no matter what you believe, if you want things to go back to normal, we all need to be doing the same thing. Exactly. Like, it's not really a matter of you now. It's It's not a matter of what you believe or what you don't believe. It's Mm -hmm. a matter of keeping people safe, regardless of what you believe, and just listening to the public, listening to what our government is telling us. Exactly. And if we are disorganized and selfish, we really reduce the the efficacy of the public health plans, which aim to save lives. And obviously, this is already a difficult task given the unprecedented nature of this situation. So yeah. honestly, 
the advice that was that was given from the pharmacist was really to follow and listen to these public health officials and mm-hmm. rules as much as possible and and we'll we'll be able to get to get through it at the, at the end of the day yeah so um that was really well put and i think that's really well that's really good advice that a lot of people should take into consideration because i feel like a lot of people have their own opinions on this pandemic mm-hmm. but it's like your opinion doesn't really matter like what matters is that we need to save lives here and mm-hmm. we need to end this pandemic You're right you know um so i actually have uh, a little quote from my dear friend elisa elisa if you're listening to this, I love you and thank you so much for participating. Unfortunately, she couldn't be with us today because she is a registered nurse. And yes, she still is in school. And yes, she is a little boss and she has a lot of things going on. So unfortunately, she didn't have the time to physically sit with us. But she wrote a little paragraph that I'd like to read to you because I, I found it was really well put. So uh, when I asked her to write a little bit about her experience being a nurse during this pandemic. She wrote that COVID reaching the ER was a weird experience. We were prepared for the numbers to rise. We were almost fully equipped to handle the pandemic, but what is now practically routine for us was once a very trial-based practice. The way we handled the first cases up till now, um, we take care of now are very difficult. Nurses become trained to test what was once only the doctor's role. The medical prescriptions varied because nobody fully knew the best treatment for the virus. Going into work, I never fully feared catching it because luckily I had a boss who took care of us and made sure we were all well prepared and well stocked up for protective gear. The worry was possibly transmitting it to my family members once being at home. The worst part of this pandemic was mainly never knowing how bad of a state you will find your patient in, especially one that comes from a resident's home. There were so many cases of of neglect, mainly because of the focus on the virus and the lack of attention on basic fundamentals like hygiene, nutrition, etc. I have seen many people pass, I've had patients under my wing die, and ultimately my goal was to accompany them to death by by offering them painless, suffer-free, comfortable living state before their time was up. I have watched young patients go into cardiac arrest. I've witnessed a 20-year-old pass away while his father was incubated a room away. I, as many of my colleagues, have worked countless overtimes, overnight shifts. I've had, I've, I've once reached 130 hours in two weeks. That's crazy. Um, it was exhausting, demanding, and took a hit on our work environment. I had reached the point where people calling me a hero would frustrate me because I did not volunteer to do this. I did not ask to be forced to stay at work after a never-ending shift. I am proud of being a nurse. I am proud of being able to offer my skill set in a time of major need. However, I am lucky to live in a country where materials weren't fully in rupture of stock and where medically we are very advanced and I am grateful to work alongside an amazing team at the ER. These are all things that brought me an advantage in this pandemic. I send love to those who had to live it worse than us and those who worked just as hard or harder. My experience during this pandemic was confusing, terrible, morally painful, but I know I didn't have it worse. That's very, very, that was a very nice statement. I read this the first time and it gave me chills. And you know what? You might not think you're a hero, but I think you are Mm -hmm. because I know like nurses and everybody in the medical field, they obviously studied for this, but no one expected to be living through this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the fact that 
obviously you can't give up it's your job but the fact that you're working those hours and you're so strong and you're still there in the forefront yeah you are a hero to many people's eyes so don't be mad at me but i think you're a hero <laughs> well jasmine so were you you know what i mean even though you're not a medically pro- medical right. professional you're a history student right you know like you were still in the forefront you were you that's were right i that's right i work as a as a lab tech at a pharmacy and I'm really not trained for this stuff. Yeah. So my experience at the pharmacy was really, really crazy to say the least. Mm-hmm. We had to adapt to a whole new system and a whole new way of doing things. You know, uh, cl- clients who were over 70 years old couldn't come to the pharmacy anymore. We even had a f- few colleagues who stopped working because yeah. they were 70 years old. And even at the beginning with like really crazy and social distancing, no one actually knew how to do it properly. Not even that at the beginning, beginning when there were no measures put in place, no yeah. plexiglass, no masks, nothing. It was a really, really crazy time. So we, everything halted. Well, I'm sure it's even scary to even show up to work considering there were no measures put in right. place. Right. At the beginning, I was, I was very, very scared. Yeah. However, I, I, you know, I adapted, I went to work, did what I had to do to the best of my abilities and, yeah. uh, and I got through it. And now, you know, I'm just happy to help people. And we, we had, you know, we had, obviously we had cases of, of clients who tested positive for, for COVID and yeah. what we had to do is we had to, you know, fill out their manage prescription, the manage, that's it. And it's really, really crazy to yeah. think of it. Well, because I, I technically never stopped working as well. I, I work part-time at a daycare like while right. I'm still in school. But yeah, I still have to take care of children, of nurses and doctors. So I was very much in contact mm-hmm. with family members of med- like of people working in the medical field who were working with COVID victims. So it was right. a very scary time at the beginning. But you know what? Be- even though it is just a couple of months that this has happened, I feel like now speaking about it, it's now become the new norm. Right. Like you wearing know, a mask. I go into right, like I said, yeah. you go into work, you put the mask at the on. Beginning, everyone's like, "What is you, this parallel universe?" And now we're just like, "Yeah, yeah." Second nature, you put a mask on the second you go. It's into really crazy how we can adapt oh, to yeah. things like this, and wow. I'm just, you know, proud yeah. of myself. Because I proud remember even me and you talking about this at the beginning. Because I, like, I checked in with her because I knew she was working at the pharmacy. Because mm-hmm. I was petrified for her. And yeah, we were all. Everyone was in a state of panic. Obviously, right. we didn't know what we were disinfecting the surfaces yeah. every hour, and like we still disinfect. Nature. No, it's exactly. It's like we yeah. don't even have to wait for the alarm to ring. It's like, okay, we need to clean now. Yeah, but you know what? Even like, say for example, like just a simple task of wearing a mask, everyone will complain about it. Now it's like I don't even feel it on my face anymore. Right, right. It's really <laughs> as, as dumb as that sounds. No, but it's just an example of how we've adopted. And how exactly. Literally, a new reality we're now facing. I, I, yeah, and if we continue to do this you know we'll we'll be all right yeah but one thing that we also have to take into consideration that we're gonna we're gonna leave this on a positive note Mm -hmm. a positive note is that now we've never been as technologically or scientifically advanced as we are today and look at how disastrous our our history has been in pandemics and how humanity has overcome it there's no doubt in my mind that we'll overcome this considering all of the technology and scientific innovations that we have today i agree so i really i everybody makes it seem like it's the end of the world it's all we obviously need to take it seriously but 
if any if if i were to have confidence in anybody it would be our generation yeah i i I fully agree we're we're gonna overcome this together and it's just a really great step in humanity yeah and like just once again take the advice from the medical professionals and take their experience to heart and Mm -hmm. take it into consideration as we move on in this pandemic right and so on that note thank you for listening and we hope you all stay happy and healthy exactly stay safe and we'll see you next week thank you bye